Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is, in theory, a podcast about 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. However, sometimes we mess up. Hence this ad-mini episode of Addendas. Today we are going to be looking at five movies each that we wish were on the list but weren't because of rules or having not seen them yet or a myriad of other reasons from 2010 to 2019. My name is Matt Waters, and I'm joined again by Ben Phillips. Ben, I guess you're still waxed, vaxxed, and, and leaving the show to marry Holly Flax? Like, no, oh, no, never mind. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, yeah. It's been so long since we last recorded mm-hmm. at this point. Minutes. So yeah, less preamble this time. You get it. These are five we wish were on that weren't. Again, I'm going alphabetically. I assume you're not going to suddenly swerve on me and go round. No, I'm not. I mean, I'm going to do a little bit which is basically like, right. to th- this last year of lockdown I basically took it upon myself to go like I'm going to try and watch all the best films of the 2010s would have been good to do before we did a podcast on that it would I think it was partly inspired by the podcast where I was like because okay. I obviously had that big big list of like the top 1000 movies of the 21st century I was like I'm going to just try and check off as many of these as I can I'm not doing anything the world <laughs> the world is locked down I'm already watching some of them as part of like the podcast but like I know I did some for Jerome's 100 movies podcast where I watched a couple of things I missed and I did some just off my back and so very much this is a lot of movies that I've watched in like the last seven or eight months yeah that my- I probably would have wanted to have been on the list if I'd watched them in time and also I threw a strop and stopped podcasting for six months so that freed up some time for you um... I freed up so much time as I said last episode, <laughs> 235 movies since we last recorded and that's on top of like social obligations completing video games I'm in the same place equal things though social obligations and completing video games I will say I think my addenda for this one are less sentimental and more actually good movies that several of which I just didn't get to quite in time as we covered on volume two of the podcast. There's a definite point in time where I kind of stop being a movie guy and sort of pivot to comfort TV and just how I use my time and stuff. So the sort of pile of big, big movies that I wanted to watch just was growing and growing and growing. And I did get to some of them for this. But you, as you are alphabetically first in Ben and Matt, get to go first. So what have you got for us? So my first movie that I'll be discussing today is 20th Century Women by Mike Mills, which is just a completely gorgeous movie. It's a film set in the 70s. It's about a boy played by Lucas Jade Zuman, who is basically being raised by three women in his life. And it is an, a semi-autobiographic movie about Mike Mills and the relationship with his sister and his mother and about how he kind of lacked that central father figure. So it's kind of like, how do you grow up being a guy when you've got women trying to be your kind of like your male voice in your life? And it's probably deep- better. <laughs> Well, that's the thing, it's, it's this just deeply lovely movie. I mean, obviously, so Annette Bening plays his mum, Al Fanning plays the girl who he's got, like, an intense crush on, Greta Gerwig plays someone who's lodging with them, and then Billy Crudup is, like, the handyman who works around the house and is also lodging with them. Great cast, everyone is so good in this. This is before Greta Gerwig goes away and <laughs> becomes one of the best directors of her generation. It's just deeply lovely. There's a review on Letterboxd I remember reading that was essentially, like, I was shocked to discover that this movie was written and directed by a man because it kind of <laughs> is so incredibly kind of devoted to these female characters. There's this one point in the movie where I think Greta Gerwig gives Jamie like a book about radical feminism and he's like reading this book and he's learning about like female sexuality and stuff like that from, from this book and he has one of those conversations that we all have with friends our age when you're a guy and it's like oh yeah I totally shagged this girl the other night and like made her come in like five minutes and then his response <laughs> is like and he 
touched her clit, right? Because you know girls can't come from like penetrative sex. And then because he starts doing this, and there's like, no, no, I didn't do that. And he's and then basically just beat him up for being like this, <laughs> this know it all. <laughs> I don't, it's just a really fucking lovely movie, and yeah. I kind of came away from it completely blown away. There's some wonderful kind of like playing with timeliness stuff to it, where you realise that the movie isn't being told from the point of view of someone in the 70s. It's kind of being told from someone in the point of view of the modern day, and it's just lovely. All of these women are fantastic. I need to see Mike Mills's Beginners, which is the movie that he gets Christopher Plummer's Oscar for early on in the decade. But just, just completely blew me away. I just watched it. I put it on, thinking like, I, I we'll see whether or not I love this. And it just immediately catapulted its way into like not only one of my favorite movies of 2016, but like one of my favorite movies of the entire decade, quite easily. It was a it was a difficult decade to get stuff on the list for. I would say <laughs> we need more of that. Quite frankly, we need more men that can write women, and I think that's because we need more men that actually know women rather than like dream them up and give them blue hair. Speaking of, kind of weirdly, this segued quite well. My first pick is *The Art of Self-Defense*, written and directed by Riley Stearns, who is the ex-husband of Mary Elizabeth Winstead. There's your link to the blue hair. She was originally set to star. She bowed out when they got divorced. 2019 was very crowded. I had other battles to fight, so I just sort of left this one by the by the wayside. But it is just this fun little offbeat black comedy that goes all in on toxic masculinity. So actually quite a nice pairing with 20th century women, where like it is so absurdly ridiculous in its misogyny that like it's funny. There is a genuine line of I'm beginning to realise or I'm beginning to think that her being a woman is going to prevent her from ever being a man and stuff like that. And Jesse Eisenberg is this weedy guy who is beaten up one night while buying food for his dog so signs up for karate lessons and it's just this hyper masculine sensei who doesn't get a name until the very end but is mostly just called sensei and like it starts off as just sort of a quirky comedy where like you know he first wants to buy a gun and the guy who's selling him the gun launches into this long speech about how it's so dangerous to own a gun if you have a child but all of the things he's saying apply to people who don't have children he's like but you don't have a child so it's fine and then it takes this real dark turn about halfway through where just full spoilers the sensei he blackmails and manipulates all his students he tricks uh, the main guy into brutally assaulting a random drunk while filming it uh he was behind the the beating that the guy got in the beginning they just mug people and some of them then get driven to karate lessons i guess and yeah it, it, he gets invited to the night class and that's where the change happens and he starts to get pulled into this sort of increasingly dark, twisted criminal enterprise, and uh, they have a dramatic standoff near the end, and I enjoy it a great deal. It's one of these movies that it doesn't quite feel like the real world. <laughs> like, everything feels super, like, it's so ridiculous that it couldn't be life, but I kind of like that about it, and it's just kind of weird in a way that I vibe with, and, uh, yeah, you know me, I love Jesse Eisenberg, and yeah, I love karate. It, it was one of those things where, like, when you said... That this is really good. I was like, is this just Matt <laughs> being on this Jesse Eisenberg kick or is it like legitimately good? And then I remember I was listening to like an awards podcast for 2019 and like all of the hosts were just like, you know who should be our best supporting actor nomination for this year? And they all said Alessandro Nivola. He's from... so good. <laughs> I've heard nothing but good things about him. It's not one that I've got to yet, but it's definitely yeah. one that's like on my radar for yeah. 2019 movies when I eventually get around to it. Yeah, um, It's just very and... different. Like, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's like this should have won an Oscar or this is one of my five favourite films ever. 
it's just it was a nice uh, breath of fresh air and it's very quirky and but played it completely straight and like he wants to wear his yellow belt all the time because it makes him feel more confident but he looks ridiculous so he orders these belts from a company that are in all of the karate colors and it's like i even had them make a black one for you i was like so this is just a belt then like you know <laughs> just ridiculous stuff like this and yeah so my next movie is the clouds of sils maria directed by olivier assayas which is God, I, again, another one that's kind of hard to discuss. So basically, starring Juliette Binoche, Kristen Stewart, and Chloe Grace Moretz, Juliette plays a middle-aged actress who in her past played the younger role in a romantic lesbian drama, where basically this younger woman starts to dominate her female boss into being in this like lesbian relationship in a play, and she gets massive acclaim for it, and then goes on to have like a fantastic career. And now it's many, many years later, and she's been offered the chance to play the same, the, the, the opposite role in a stage play. So she's basically coming to play the older woman who is blackmailed by the younger lesbian upstart played by Gloria Grace Moretz and it's kind of this movie dealing with aging in Hollywood and in these movies and how there's so few roles that are this in-depth for older women and how you're constantly in the shadow of kind of like younger more famous people but also on the side of it you have Kristen Stewart playing the assistant who is reading the lines with this character playing the young lesbian who's coming in and basically this weird like pseudo-sexual relationship starts coming where you're not sure if they're reading scenes from the play or whether or not they're actually having an affair with each other as they're living in this house in the Swiss Alps and it's just deeply fascinating. Kristen Stewart is so fucking good in this movie. It blurs that line between like is she legitimately in love with this woman or is she just sick of her bullshit? We've all been there. Yeah, there's there's a fantastic scene where they go to the cinema to go see Chloe Grace Moretz in her new movie and it's such a scathing take on like modern blockbuster cinema. They film this scene that's like this mock blockbuster and they're discussing whether or not she's a good actress or whether or not all movies have become this kind of like stripped back like you're not able to be good because you're playing this kind of like watered down milk toast kind of like generic thing that everyone is is forcing you to play. So many opinions on cinema and women's place in it and like how do you age gracefully in a world in which we only care about kind of young actresses and people who can do these big blockbusters in a lot of ways i think i think after i saw it i was like i would love to watch like a double bill of this movie and birdman (laughs) because they're both kind of grappling with similar things in terms of aging and what it means to to hollywood to only produce kind of these big budget movies that make money rather than these like small interesting projects yeah just really fucking good i don't think you need to go much further than the the main three actors in it to be honest to get anyone interested in it yeah chris and stewart good it, it turns out is our position <laughs> i still haven't seen personal shopper which is a reteaming of Asias and stewart so I, mm. I think that's i'm gonna be watching that very soon so maybe i'll come back and go like fuck i should have had personal <laughs> shopper on the list instead <laughs> One day this podcast will balloon to like 40 films per decade or something like that. So, you mentioned how you'd like to watch it back to back with Birdman, which goes very well because my next pick is Birdman. And basically, I was adamant. I was like, oh, this is a layup. Of course this goes on the list. And then I learned you hate it. So, as I wanted to, you know, pick my battles elsewhere with, say, Chef and Bad Times at the El Royale, I was like, ah, fuck it. Just let Birdman go. But while I acknowledge things like the anti-critic stance are incredibly cringe and overdone and, like, you know, <laughs> in a ritu, like, taking shots at the media or whatever, I, again, am a sucker for a gimmick. 
So the the clever production tricks of making it seem like one incredibly long take, it's godly to me, quite frankly. And, and the, the percussion soundtrack that accompanies it, it is... It's just this sustained atmosphere for two hours, and it's mostly just that, to be honest. Like, you know, you've, you've obviously got, like, the meta aspect of and, and the resurgence of Michael Keaton. Very cute to me that, like, they incorporated Batman in place of Birdman, you know. A huge shot in the arm for him. He's back in a big way after this. Edward Norton has some problems with that character as he basically assaults a fellow actress, but the scene where he, on the fly, just completely tears apart a scene that they're supposed to do and re- and he's like, no, 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 let's, let's rebuild this from the ground up, is as good of a piece of acting as I think I've ever seen, personally. And yeah, just, you know, it's got the wanky ending, you know, did he fly, did he die, is it all a dream? There are lots of little things that it's like, yeah, sure, but I just cannot escape what a piece of direction and, and production trickery this is, and how, like, magnetic Michael Keaton is, and yeah, I mean, I, I don't have much to say about it, I just, all of that blew me away. I don't hate Birdman, I <laughs> Yes, just, you do! It's just one of the things where, and it's, as I've watched more Inarritu movies, he is someone who, to me, is very style before substance hmm. and I, I think Revenant I, I think this is probably his best movie that I've yeah. seen but watching Revenant the other day I was like God, oh Revenant this. sucks <laughs> <laughs> it's like this movie looks gorgeous everyone's doing good enough work but like nothing about this movie is elevating it to a level where I'm like yes one of the best movies of 2015 or this is the movie that Leonardo DiCaprio has to win his Oscar for and it's a similar thing here where it's like so much of this looks fantastic everyone is doing good work I just don't think it adds up to more than what it thinks it is and I mean I've had conversations with with Jerome where it's basically it's very similar to the Moonlight La La battle where like I think the best thing for Birdman would have been if it hadn't one best picture <laughs> it kind of it kind of leads it open to more vicious discussion like if it had gone to boyhood instead i mean sure then the roles would be flipped where boyhood would probably wouldn't be the kind of the underdog of the season and birdman would be the but that that kind of like vibe to it where like birdman accepts more pot shots now just because it won the best picture that year. yeah but again I, I maybe i'll get around to rewatching it at some point i just it's just one of those movies where i'm like i wish this movie had more to say because obviously the things it does have to say felt just very surface level and kind yeah. of aimed in the wrong places. Yeah, the the critic thing and the, like, you know, this is what American theatre needed, what, someone to fucking kill themselves on stage? <laughs> like, all of that is whatever. It's just, to me, it's it's an exercise in directing. It is an exhibition in acting. It's a small cast in a small area that yeah, generally I, goes down well with me. I like I those think, kinds think, of things. I think I'm kind of realizing that I'm not. I used to think like I love a long take, and I'm kind of coming around to the point where like maybe I don't like these single take movies because I didn't like 1917 either. Well, that's got other stuff working against it, but yeah. I mean, but I did love Son of Saul, which is. Yeah so much more harrowing and one day sympathy for the devil will be a podcast we do and we can talk about the three daredevil one takes so yeah the the corridor fight from each season yeah so speaking of movies that one of us hate yeah probably the biggest recurring joke on the entire website at this point <laughs> i don't think there is part of the website that is immune to the references we have to your hatred for mad max Fury. Right? disclaimer before you start I told you repeatedly, put it on the list anyway. Continue. I, I wanted to avoid contentious episodes. Obviously, I failed because we had Florida Projects still on the list by the time we got to the end of it. But Mad Max is a perfect movie. My God. Just 
No, go on, sorry. Tom Hardy, Charlize Theron are fantastic. Thematically, it's fascinating in terms of like just the subtle undercurrent of feminism, going throughout all of it with all these characters. It's just pulp storytelling done so perfectly. It looks gorgeous. It sounds gorgeous. Yes, the plot of the movie is we drove to one place and then we drove back the other way. <laughs> like There is no getting around. The movie is not. It isn't a masterclass in acting. Like, I'm not saying Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron should have won Best Actor and Actress from this movie. I'm also not saying that it's incredibly deep, but it should have won Best Picture. It's easily the best movie of 2015, by a long shot. I watched it again last year as I did a George Miller run, which made me realise how fucking insane this man's career is. <laughs> he goes from directing three Mad Max movies into pivoting into Witches of Eastwick and Lorenzo's Oil. Then he does two Babe movies back-to-back, then two Happy Feet movies, and then he comes out in in like his 70s and directs the shit out of a movie in which everyone was there with him kind of going like this looks shit like what on earth are you doing right now <laughs> he doesn't work everyone hates being out here in the desert tom hardy <laughs> and charlie Theron are set to like murder each other and then as it fell into like the editing process and everything was coming together everyone was like fuck he's done it he was literally the only person on set who could understand what was going on and there's a reason why last year there was a hell of a lot of like retrospective about this movie and they got interviews with pretty much everyone involved in the cast and they were going like yeah we had no idea that it was going to be something this good this kinetic this colorful this relevant in in terms of the world yeah it, I, mean, I think more than anything this is kind of the movie that a lot of people are like this isn't your moonlights this isn't your big kind of like very obvious oscar baiting movies this is just pure technical visceral filmmaking done by a master who is somehow going back into the desert to do another one of these fucking movies again and <laughs> I've got no idea how he does it. He's 76 years old now. Ugh, insane, insane. Throw him on the scrap heap. He's 76. I would really like to see a sort of Heart of Darkness kind of behind the scenes on Mad Max's production. I'd like to see Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy try and kill each other. Um, I just don't get it. More than any other movie possibly in history that is beloved. I just don't get it. I sat and I watched it and I was like, this is just noise and this is just driving. <laughs> And there are no characters, except maybe Furiosa. I mean, you know, I won't go as far as to say that in a movie called Mad Max, Max should be, you know, it should all hinge around him. Like, I'm fine with subverting that, but just sort of like, to me, there are no characters. And they just drive. <laughs> and they just drive back again. And I, I, I can't get it. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's something broken inside of me, I guess. But I just have never understood why it is so incredibly popular. Especially with, like, the critics, you know? Like, I get why it would be popular, I guess, with, with, with the general public. Like, it, it is a big, noisy action movie. But, like, I don't understand why it has that higher level of acclaim. But props to George Miller for taking a disastrous film and fixing it in the edit, I guess. Like, Mike and I have just talked about New Mutants, which Josh Boone tried to fix in the edit with very limited footage and failed. So props to George Miller, I guess. But everyone, direct all your insults at me all you want. Say I'm ridiculous. I just don't understand. <laughs> but again, I kept telling Ben to put it on. So anyone who was like, Matt, how dare you deprive us of a, of a Mad Max episode? I didn't. I encouraged him to put it on. But also, would we have wanted two hours of you, of me going on for like ten minutes about how good certain scenes were, and then Matt going like, it was fine. They just drove more. <laughs> and then they turned around. And then the four ladies who... Anyway. I don't know, maybe one of these days I'll watch it again and it'll just... I get it now.
but drag you to like a cinema screening of it so you can watch it in in the environment it's supposed to be seen in. yeah i did just watch it on a big tv instead of a giant cinema screen so maybe that's what i'm missing here and once you've been exposed to it in that level it's just got its hooks in you but what's your number three pick for the 2010s sorry yeah i'm just i'm in a mad max uh, hole here right gone girl david fincher's gone girl obviously the social network is better this is purely just repeat director rule fucking us up here it's full-blown Fincher in, in full effect, which is always, well, not always a win, but generally always a win. It weaponizes Ben Affleck's fundamental kind of... I don't want to say Ben Affleck is a complete dickhead, but, like, there is something about him where, even if he's nice, there is a douchebaggy element to him, and he has become this meme of this smoking, depressed man. <laughs> and I feel this movie really weaponizes that sort of oblivious douchebaggery as he gets caught in this media trap of, you know, his wife has gone missing and everyone is in his face, and, like, without thinking twice, he does a little smile when they do a photo of him. And it's like, oh, this guy's a sociopath, he's smiling while his wife is missing, and all of this stuff. And, you know, we gradually get the reveals that, like, they weren't that happy together. The halfway through point, the reveal that, A, she framed him for her murder, and B, she's still fucking alive and just <laughs> hiding out in a campsite somewhere, completely fucked me up the first time I saw it. Like, I had not read the book, I knew nothing about it, I just watched it because it's like, oh look, it's a big sexy Fincher movie with Ben Affleck, and I was like, okay, cool, I'll watch that. And that just completely floored me to see the, the lengths that Rosamund Pike's character goes to to frame her husband and like there is this really interesting dichotomy here where it's like there is a real like good for her kind of vibe about it <laughs> but then also the extremity of her monstrousness and like you know there, there is this difficult thing of like woman as monster in, in cinema you know the justifiable resentment of him and like they had to move to his hometown and like he became this sort of burnout who cheats on her and is just shitty and everything and like you know fair leave him but you know she frames him for murder i think in a state that has the death penalty and that you know as it starts to come out that like she accused one of her exes of rape she has a restraining order against another one who she then murders makes it look as though he kidnapped and raped her she mutilates herself with a bottle comes home and traps nick in this marriage she's artificially inseminated herself all of that is kind of a bit iffy that they've created this like monstrous woman but the game of cat and mouse that they play <coughs> with each other on like in front of the public as he's sort of like talking directly to camera and like baiting her and then at the end that they're having to play happy families in front of the media while she's trapped him and i really like all of that and it's just so stylish it's so fincher it's just social networks better yeah I mean, it's a really fucking good movie i think i've said on the podcast i actually think it's better than the book in oh, terms yeah. of the book has these elements of like the chapter ends and he goes like and i lied to them and it like it's all building up this like false idea that he's a dickhead whereas ben affleck's innate ben affleckness sells that he's a dickhead yeah, yeah. a lot better than like telling the audience that you are being having with information withheld from you yeah. which i think is the the big downside of I think, I think anybody could have played this role, but Ben Affleck gives it something in the subtext that other people would have, you know, you would have had to add more dialogue and stuff to achieve the same effect of just looking at Ben Affleck trying to be a person that achieves. That's Gone Girl. A good, yeah, good movie. I, I do really like it, but again, it was just Social Network is my number one movie of the decade. That's oh, yeah. not getting on over that one. My next film is a movie which, if I had watched, it's... Oh God, so I'm discussing 2011's Margaret, mm. which is technically not a 2011 movie in terms of the fact that it was shot in like 2004, 2005, so everyone looks super, super young. 
written, directed by Kenneth Lonergan, who at this point is probably more famous for Manchester by the Sea. This movie kind of got completely fucked over by the behind the scenes story where they shoot it in 2004, 2005. It takes seven years to come out because Kenneth Lonergan is in a legal battle with the producers of the movie. They don't want to approve a movie that's over 150 minutes long. Good. They bring in uh, Martin Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker to come contribute to a 165-minute cut of the movie that they still won't release. The extended cut is a 186-minute cut of the movie, which is a full-blown masterpiece. I haven't seen the 2.5-hour cut, but everything I've heard about it is, like, it's bad. Fundamentally, like, just cuts out so much of what makes this movie so good, but the 3-hour cut is a genuine masterpiece. I know that Mike Thomas on the website has kind of come out and gone, like, yeah, it's it's fucking great for the 3-hour cut. So the movie stars Anna Paquin, J. Smith Cameron, John Renault, Alison Janey, Matthew Broderick, Mark Ruffalo, Matt Damon, Gina Berlin, Kieran Culkin. Awful lot of the succession cast, because they're basically just pulling from <laughs> New York theatre in the mid-2000s at this point. Essentially, the plot of the movie is about a girl who basically she waves at a bus driver causing him to be distracted and kills Alison Janey oh, no. in like the first 10 minutes of the movie and then it becomes her trying to get the bus driver fired in like a longful death lawsuit but it's also so much more than that because it's all about this like bratty 17 year old girl and I think more than anything like it feels like New York City is alive in this movie like there are long shots where like it will pan across buildings and you will hear snippets of conversations from people who aren't even other characters in the movie would you say new york is one of the characters in the i movie? don't want to go <laughs> that kind of douchey statement but yeah it's just it's just like the things that the edit adds so like there's one scene that i've seen online where basically two characters are walking across a road and in the in the 150 minute cut movie it's all uninterrupted they just walk across the road and everything's fine they continue the conversation but in the three hour cut it does things like it pauses them on the side of the road and then they digitally add a car driving through to give them a natural break in the conversation and it's those kind of things that just make it feel alive in terms of like it's a like people are really acting how people would in terms of living in a city and talking and, and acting in these ways and just everyone's at the top of their game. Anna Paquin and Jason Smith Cameron are fantastic as a mother and daughter duo. I, d- I genuinely don't think I can put into words what it feels like to basically just immerse yourself in this three hour cut. I'm really fucking annoyed that in the US on HBO Max you've got the option of which cut you watch. In the UK it's just the two and a half hour cut on Disney Plus. It's a it's a real shame and I really wish Disney would put the three hour cut on there. The three hour cut is available in the UK but like just not on streaming but yeah like a genuine actual masterpiece quashed by the legal problem and the fact that the cut that was released is just butchered beyond belief. One day we'll get HBO Max over here. One day. (laughs) I don't think we will. I also don't think it will get out from under the Disney Fox deal because it is literally a Fox Searchlight pictures. I don't know why it's on HBO Max, but it is. Interesting. It's weird to me that Anna Paquin never, like, fully, fully exploded. You know, like, it seemed like she was primed for greatness and then she just fizzled out. And I don't know if this taking so long to come out plays a part in that. But It, it probably is partly that. It probably is also the fact that she goes and does True Blood for seven years. <laughs> for too long. <laughs> it feels like she's she's on the verge and probably also, like, because th- this would have come out just before X-Men The Last Stand if it had come out properly. And other than that, what, like, Squid and the Whale is mm. the only other thing that she's really in that could have used her well. Yeah. Just, you know, like, if the momentum had been... If she'd gotten that from this, instead of, like, basically just kind of, to many, going from X-Men to True Blood to nothing, and then, like, coming back to X-Men because she's gettable again and stuff like that. And... It's weird. I mean, she's someone who I genuinely really like in most things and is genuinely fucking fantastic in this movie as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of weird... <laughs> 
These have flowed much better than I anticipated, but there you go. The Lighthouse from 2019, one of the ones I mentioned that, like, I had it on a list to watch, and I just never got to it until recently. Co-written and directed by Robert Eggers, with, uh, co-written with his brother Max. When we were talking about it, we had identical experiences in that I spent about an hour being like, well, these two are really good actors, but this is just whatever. And then it starts to get really weird. It starts to get truly weird when it starts to intermingle supernatural elements, the reveal that one of them is not who he says he is, when Willem Dafoe starts to gaslight Robert Pattinson, where it's, it's like, no, you did this. The Promethean fate and, and the recreation of the painting hypnosis and, and what's in the light and, and the burying alive and all of this. That's when I was like, oh, okay, I get it. And that's not to say that it, purely on the merits of the acting it shouldn't get talked about because they are both incredible. And we talk about two-handers sometimes. This is a true two-hander because you've got like three other people who appear for like seconds between them. And one of them is playing a mermaid. So, <laughs> but yeah, just they each get these two huge monologues where they're completely tearing each other apart. And those are sort of the highlights, I think, in terms of the acting as well as, as that Buried Alive sequence. They have mastered these hyper-specific Specific antiquated regional accents. I think Willem Dafoe's command of sort of the wordy blend of this era of sailor and also like he's quoting Shakespeare and stuff and he's incredible. The two of them have this just electric chemistry where they are just fundamentally completely different actors where Dafoe wants to rehearse, 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 rehearse because he's a theatre guy and Robert Pattinson holds back because he wants to surprise himself on a first take. And Eggers even admitted, like, all of his first takes are better than all the ones that we do afterwards. And it's just, like, seeing that clash, like, that could have gone horribly, but it really makes the story of these two disgruntled people in black and white stuck on a, a tiny little island with a lighthouse for weeks. Oh, who knows how long it's been? That's one of the plot points. And that's not even to mention, like, the homoeroticism, the wanking, the wanting a father, the leading him on <laughs> on a leash like a dog and even like that Robert Pattinson's character is this prototypical fake deep white boy who wants praise for being painfully average and it's just really comforting to know that that has been a thing throughout all of history and not just now. Yeah, I remember watching this in the cinema and like I, I'd seen it after a friend had kind of said to me so it didn't really work for me and so I went in and I was like, yeah, it's not really working for me either. But then, yeah, I, like it just basically takes this turn where it gets weird and <laughs> kind of, I, I, I generally don't know how to describe it. I don't know if it's like when the, the, the mermaid shows up with the like blowhole vagina. <laughs> the shark genitalia. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's a wild movie. I would have had Willem Dafoe win two supporting actor awards for yeah. the decade, whatever it is, because between this and the Florida Project, the range between those two roles where he's playing the nicest man in the world in the Florida Project, and then this, he's playing... A monster. A monster. <laughs> Potentially, <that> literally. <laughs> <laughs> really, really fucking good movie. 2019, just completely packed, though. It wasn't even on my... like A movie which I love as much as The Lighthouse, it wasn't even on my radar to go like, no, this needs to be one of the ones we need to discuss in 2019. We really struggled with not having, like, six movies for 2019. Genuinely, we're at a point now where I think every movie we've got left to discuss today is 2019. <laughs> yeah. And we've already done our self-defence. Yeah. <laughs> My final movie for the Adenda is Portrait Lady on Fire by Slinsky Armour. I have three five-star movies on Letterboxd for 2019. It's Parasite, it's Little Woman, and it's this. This movie is incredible. The basic gist of it is, it is very lesbian period drama, if to, to quote the SNL sketch, where basically just Naomi Milant and Nadel Henel end up trapped on an island, essentially, where Marianne has to paint a picture of Heloise 
to basically send to her potential future husband. And it's this movie that's basically just like trying to convince her to come out and be painted. And then obviously it becomes, oh no, we're really into each other. We should bone. And the movie is so, it's stunning. Claire Mathon's cinematography is absolutely stunning. She is a, a true force. She did Atlantics in 2019 and is doing the new, the Kristen Stewart starring Diana Spencer drama directed by the guy who did Jackie, which is mm. going to look incredible. But this movie commands tone and visuals. The performances are superb. The music in it is incredible. There is no score to this movie. There are exactly like two pieces of music in this movie. One is an original composition. The other is just without these four seasons. It has an ending that's as crushingly emotional as Call Me By Your Name. There aren't words to describe just how good this movie are. Like even even to the point of view where like the weirdness of the fact that Slinsky Armour and Adele Hennell used to have a romantic relationship before this movie. And so the way that the camera kind of lingers all over her it kind of has the feeling of these ex-lovers just because they are the, the, the director and the lead actress are in that position there are no men with more than like a single line of dialogue in this movie it is fuck yeah it is fully female characters there's this point in the movie where you've spent so long with just these three women on this island because they have a, an assistant as well and then one of them walks into the kitchen and a sailor is just sat there and it's like a weird record skip where it's like oh no this is weird this isn't the tone that you've given me for, for the rest of the movie What's men have like? intruded our island <laughs> exactly and it's this it just it's so perfect it's in the vein of like in the mood for love where it's just this crushingly romantic movie there isn't much plot but every gaze every look between these two characters is superb being directed by an out lesbian it isn't porny in the same way that something like blue is the warmest color is like the sex scenes feel romantic and real and finally we have to we have to applaud Adele Hennell for storming out of the Caesar Awards when they tried to give best picture to Roman Polanski oh yeah again the synergy of back-to-back island movies with Homer Robson <laughs> I have seen that final shot, and it is, uh, yeah, like you say, call me by your name, haunting. All right, I guess it falls to me to close out, to to take us home. So it's Uncut Gems, again, from 2019, from the Safties. I watched Good Turn, and then that made me watch Uncut Gems. Weirdly, you'd think Uncut Gems would appeal because, hey, look, basketball everywhere, and Kevin Garnett's in it, and The Weeknd's in it, and all that. But no, uh, I'd heard how good Good Time is, and I finally watched it. I was like, yeah, Good Time is good. It is a good time. So let's watch the Uncut Gems, and I did. And I will say, on first watch, I was kind of like you know, yeah, this is really tense and, and look how good Adam Sandler is and look how surprisingly good Kevin Garnett is and all that. And I was like, okay, cool. And then like in the days and weeks afterwards, it kind of really just sat in my brain and I was like, that was really, really good. Sometimes I get that kind of delayed effect and it's profoundly weird to me that they picked this incredibly specific period of time of this just meaningless basketball playoff series from 2009 I, I can't even remember when it's supposed to be but it's not a big dramatic finals it's not a famous basketball series it just is what it is and it gets you Kevin Garnett as a main character whose intensity as a as a real world NBA player translated shockingly well to acting he does an amazing job of rolling with the utter chaos of that that cramped claustrophobic jewelry store with all of this, I have to assume, mostly improvised dialogue, that he rolls with that and doesn't break and look at camera or freak out or anything. There were other names considered for this role who would have been decent, but I can't imagine it as anyone but Kevin Garnett. But it's all about Adam Sandler. I love that he is this 
absolute fucking goof who makes these tragically not funny comedies that ostensibly are very popular. <laughs> Netflix give him all the money. And then about once every five to ten years, he's like, oh, I'm a really fucking good actor. I just choose not to. <laughs> Which is quite a flex, but yeah, here he is as the world's most chaotic, mentally ill gambling addict. The extremity of these bets is utterly wild. He's betting on opening tips of basketball games. There is no skill to an opening tip. They just happen. It's literally 50-50 odds. And he's betting big money on, like, who will win the tip. You know, it's one thing to be like, oh, I think Kevin Garnett will score at least 25 points. But to be like, yeah, I think he's going to do this, 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 and this. I think he has a six-way bet at some point. And it all comes back to haunt him at the end. Like, you've shown me the video of your partner reacting to the ending. And, like, it didn't shock me as much. Because I was like, well, of course. Look what he's been doing for the last two hours. He owes all this money. He's making these bets while he owes this money. He's won, and then he's decided to, like, push it even further and make the giant bet at the end. And he locks these mobsters in a tiny little claustrophobic booth for, like, two hours. Of course he gets shot in the fucking face at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, good movie. I mean, Julia Fox is fantastic. Lucky yes. Samuel's fantastic. Yes. Some great random cameos from, like, Natasha Lyonne, Tilda Swinton, Pom Clementine, playing absolutely nothing roles. I think she had a bigger role that got cut. Pom. The weekend as himself from then is really the weird one to me. Like, wearing his old hairstyle as a wig. Going with, like, oh, he's up and coming, and he's now, like, one of the biggest musicians in the world. Um, I, I have to wonder, because obviously, like, Kevin Garnett, part of the plot of the movie is they drive to, to where the Boston Celtics are training. Did they have to pick it so it's like, they have to be a reasonable distance from New York that they have to drive there, and it's like a whole thing yeah. to go to his training place? Or was it just, oh, this is ideal because Boston is a short enough drive from New York? York. I mean, you know, a huge plot point is that he is borrowing his championship ring, so that sort of narrows down on your candidates of people to use who had won championships around this time. But, you know, you could have just taken some of his expensive jewellery, but it gives it that extra something that he's taking this one-of-a-kind thing and then using it as collateral so he can go make a separate bet and incredibly chaotic. But Yeah, easily the last great movie I got to see in cinemas before the pandemic started. Like, I remember <laughs> I was there, like, January 2nd at one of the first UK screenings and just in a room full of people so fully up for it. it was incredible it's a shame that this movie was put on Netflix in the UK and obviously it made it great because everyone got to see it but I would have loved to have had a, like a wider cinema release although I... you look at like the audience reaction it's like people <laughs> went into this expecting an Adam Sandler movie and instead they got <laughs> the most tense movie <laughs> ever made it. It's not even tense in terms of what's happening, it's just everything is so loud and shouty that like, yeah. you go in yeah. expecting the, the funny man who does poop jokes and you end up getting... There is a Safties style, I think I can confidently say after two movies that like, isn't going to be for everyone and I'm surprised it's for me actually, but hey, here we are. Bring out really good performances for people they and do. I'm very excited to see what they do next. Yes, same. Well, speaking of doing things next, now that we have done all of our admin, next up on there will be movies we will do our very brief episode zero and then it's on to the 1990s i guess we'll reveal our first film on episode zero but until then go to entertherealworld.com check out the matt signal where i am crazy enough to review two episodes of batman the animated series per week and marvel mondays where i will be looking at loki until that's over there are podcasts there are things maybe ben will write some things for the website one day but until then, Ben, you can't answer that, but can you answer if there will be movies? I can. I mean, there won't be any movies next week. We're just going to be going through some rules, which is pretty dull. But the week after that, I think there might be one movie. Okay. Great. 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 <laughs> Bye.